Uh, this week, I talked to my grandmother on the phone. She's 98. Her name is Mavis. I don't call her that. That's just her name. There are not many Mavises around. She said, Robert, I think I, I think I need to go ahead and die. All my friends in heaven are starting to wonder if I made it. She's, uh, she's where I get it, by the way. I blame Mavis for many of my problems. This morning, I want to talk about what really, really, really matters on this uh, journey of faith. I really admire that woman and her journey of faith. What an example of faithfulness in, in my life, in the life of our family. Uh, I want to talk about what matters, and I want to really begin with a question. Have you ever been involved in an organization and the experience sours over time because you realize there's no larger mission, purpose, or motivation beyond its own preservation. You know, the church, the church that Jesus started, the church that where he told Peter, hey, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. The church, he said, this organization that began with its laser-like focus would go on and on. And it began with a very clear mission and this laser-like focus Uh, What a powerful combination, right? If you know what you're going after and you're committed to going after it, isn't isn't that what you want? What if your family was like that? What if if the organization that you led that brought income to some level into your life, what if it was like that for you uh, on the job? And and, uh, how gratifying if you're one of the leaders in that. Isn't that that good? And imagine the church if, if we were like that. Rather than, as Galatians 5, 13 says, rather than biting and devouring one another, we would realize our purpose. It's much bigger than one person, and we would come around that under Jesus. This week I was reading, don't fault me for this, we got some business-savvy guys, and men and women in our church, I try to keep up with some of you. And during my reading this week, I prayed a strange prayer. In fact, I'm sure I've never prayed it before. I'm like you, a lot of my prayers get on a repetitious cycle sometimes. It's mindless babbling, as Jesus talked about in Matthew 6. I'm guilty of that sometimes. But I prayed a unique prayer in my reading uh, this week. I said, Lord, make me like a hedgehog and make us like a hedgehog. What do you you know about these guys? Awfully cute. Some of our kids are in the room. Today, I want you to go home and ask your parents for a hedgehog, okay? Just whine and gripe and complain and make loud noises, scream and kick on the floor until your parents get you a pet hedgehog. These guys obviously are not uh, imposing predators. Obviously, there's not intimidating presence there. They're, They're awfully cute. They don't run fast, jump high, or swim in dangerous open waters. In fact, when they're threatened, and they're often threatened by many predators around them, what do they do? They fall down, and they stick out their quills for their protection, very effective protection. They, they just waddle around looking for food and caring for their own. Hedgehogs are focused. They, they don't worry about a lot of things. For them, it's just really those couple of things. And as I was reading this, uh, I stumbled across this quote. Some of you will know a great prolific business author, Jim Collins, in a book, Good to Great. Don't act like you had not read it. You have. You want to know what separates organizations that make the biggest impact from all others? They're hedgehogs. They do what's essential, and they ignore the rest. Let me be clear. We're not a business. We're not a corporation. We're not a factory. We're a church. And Jesus is our boss, our leader, our CEO. And as we follow him, one of the things that Jesus longed for is that we would come together and we would know our mission. 
He prayed a prayer that scholars call a high priestly intercessory prayer recorded in John 17. Father, I pray for my disciples. I pray that they would be one because people are going to believe in me as they are one. And I pray not just for them, but for those who will believe on me through their word. When we pull together around a Savior and Jesus and Jesus alone is our CEO, our boss, and our leader. And we ignore things that don't matter and focus on what really does. Man, can I tell you? It's what the world is longing for and what I'm praying for with great expectation. Lord, make me a hedgehog. Make us a hedgehog. There's a passage found in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. We're going to put it up. It, it, It goes like this. For in Christ Jesus... There's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. I read that very poorly, very poor inflections on my part. Are you disappointed? I am. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. That wasn't too bad. John John Maxwell, you ought to get up here and read that for us. I mean, the right way. You got gifts I don't have, but you're old. Yeah. (laughs) John said, I know. You're publicly undercutting me, John, right here in church. I've got guys outside in the parking lot. Should we move on? Yes. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You guys know pastors get a lot of emails. Y'all know that? Several months ago, I believe it was, I, I, I quoted this passage in a sermon. It was done extemporaneously. And I got a lot of emails from you. It was odd to me and people saying, that's, that's the kind of life I want. That's the kind of church that I want to be involved in. And Jesus had this mission that he would seek and save the lost, that people would move away from religious rites and rituals and their religious identity and their patriotism and all of their traditionalism and would move toward what really, really matters. And the church, when it started, it was a real beautiful thing. But letters were written and apostles were set in place, their systems and structures, not to get in the way, not to prevent people from hearing the gospel, but to love and serve And to make sure the compassionate message of Jesus would spread in a way that really, really mattered. Not long ago, I heard there was a woman in another church. She said, if she told the pastor, if you mention that word circumcision, I'm leaving. Now, obviously, I don't know anything about this woman, but she's a little too prim and proper, I think. Okay? Here's what I want to say. I want to back up. We'll dig a little deeper next week into Galatians, into this book. But I want to back up and give you some background of why this is so important. In fact, if you don't understand this concept, this teaching here, it's going to be very hard for you to understand a lot of the New Testament, certainly the epistles that were written by Peter and James and John, okay? So let's back up to one of the defining moments in the church. In fact, this makes sense if you understand the early church and what was happening in the book of Acts, specifically in Acts chapter 15. It's known, in fact, if if any good study of Bible will say the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. There was the the opening day of the church. And if you know the history of our church, of our faith, uh, the church launched big. Opening day was huge. And thousands, listen, thousands of Jewish people embraced Jesus as their Messiah. But after opening day, 
it spilled over. This movement of Jesus just wasn't contained in the very Jewish city of Jerusalem, but it, it spilled over into the outlying villages and towns and provinces around Jerusalem and into many non-Jewish regions. And non-Jewish people were coming to faith in Jesus as well. People who were called Gentiles. And these Gentiles, when they believed in Jesus, guess what they wanted to do? Just like us, when you believe in Jesus, you want to belong to what he's doing, don't you? They wanted to, they wanted to join with other Jesus followers. This became um, uneasy for the Jewish Christians. And by the way, they didn't, those who embraced Jesus as their Messiah, they didn't see it as a new religion. They saw it as an extension of what Abraham and the prophets had brought to them. And so they accepted Jesus as their Messiah, but what as their Jewish Messiah. Every time they heard the phrase kingdom of God, what did they think? The kingdom of Israel. But as the gospel spread and as Gentiles embraced it, they became, most of them became uneasy about this, and some of them, even many of them, were offended by it because the Gentiles, like any tribe or nationality or people group, they had what? They had their customs. They had their preferences. They had their very own values. They had the way they thought, their worldview, their outlook, the way they did things. They, were, they had offensive, sacrilegious eating habits. They didn't understand Jewish traditions of the Sabbath and ceremonial cleaning Cleansing, rather, and a lot of the things that went into being a very ardent, devout Jewish believer. And this led to debate. And what does debate oftentimes lead to? It leads to division. And it, it, it only became logical, what, that the, for the Jewish followers of Jesus, that the Gentile followers would, what, to follow a Jewish Messiah, they would need to become Jewish. Tough task, by the way, to become Jewish if you're a Gentile. Very tough task. You would have to learn Hebrew theology and Jewish scriptures. Any idea how difficult that is, especially if you're an adult Gentile male? And not only that, you had to adopt all the laws of Moses, those ten laws that almost, well, many of us can quote by memory, but also 600 commandments that were added on subsequently. But for the adult male Gentiles who were uh, raised in the predominant Greek and Roman value system, that would be very difficult for them because it not only would require Sabbath ceremonial cleansing and the adoption of traditions, it would require, honestly, folks, surgery. Acts 15.1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, at Fondren Church, our membership requirements are what? Threefold. Attend prologue. Uh, share your story with us and sign a statement of faith. That, that's it. If you think our requirements are, are, are too high, look at this one, right? Uh, the new member classes had lots of women and children while men waited out in the car, right? <laughs> this was addressed um, as, as revival was taking place, that's kind of an American word, as revival was taking place in this predominantly Gentile city of Antioch. They became uneasy and offended that they were accepting Jesus, but were not caring for the customs and traditions of the Jewish people. So what did they do? They did what religious people would do. We do it all the time today. They appointed a committee. They appointed a committee to go 
straighten things out. But what did the committee do? The committee made things worse. Ever heard that story before? Let's get a committee to straighten things out. The committee goes and they do what? They make things worse. We ought to say that out loud as a church. And they, they make things worse. And in the, the Gentile city of Antioch, and one of the things, by the way, that exacerbated the problem is that these early apostles, those who had been with Jesus, they themselves were on the outskirts. They themselves took opening day, the inaugural advent of Jesus, and they took it out into the outlying regions. And they themselves were seeing other people come to faith in Jesus. The leaders at Antioch, at the time were Paul and Barnabas and a few others. They had an envoy. They went to Jerusalem, hence the council of Jerusalem. And Peter stands up, or here's what was said, similar to verse uh, 1, uh, Acts 15, 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised, not just that, and required to keep the law of Moses. And here Peter stands up in a stirring speech, one of the great speeches in church history. He stands up, and part of what he says is found in verses 9 and 10, I believe. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Leave that passage up. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of someone who taught about the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and one of the charges, one of the woes? Jesus issues seven woes to religious people. Woe are those, woe are those. And he says, woe to the Pharisees who put a weight on people that they cannot bear. Do you, do you see what I'm saying to your church? There's, there's, we add things that ought not to be there. We're, we're, we're far from hedgehogs. And after Peter speaks, James stands up. And he's got the floor. It's open mic night at the Jerusalem Council. And here's what James says. He had quotes the verses between these two. He quotes from the prophet Amos. And then he says this. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, can I just say, that statement is huge. It's huge back then. And it's huge for us now. And what he's saying there is we, we add things and we do what? We make it a burden and we make it difficult and we make it something that it shouldn't be. We want to keep on keeping on with other things that get in the way of the central message. We should not make it difficult for people to turn to God. You see, that's the beginning where theologically it's really clear for us that the gospel Jesus is saying to us through these leaders, he's saying to us as he taught and as he lived himself that it's bigger and broader, more expansive, inclusive than we've ever dreamt or thought of. It should involve, it is a message that should, could go to everyone and there doesn't need to be a lot put onto it. We don't need to make this a heavy burden to bear. We say it often, but the gospel is good news. And this series that we began this morning that will run through the, the month of August, we're calling it The Church on Point and on Purpose. And what if we could be the church as we live out our, our three values of gospel enjoyment, intentional community, and prayerful mission? What if we could be a church that realized that there's one thing that counts? 
one thing that counts, according to Galatians 5, 6. It's not the religious stuff. The one thing that counts is faith as it expresses itself in love. You know, we, we built the American church on the idea of discipleship. And I think every church ought to be about making disciples because Jesus said that is our mission. And every good church I know, in essence, says that is their mission. Whether it's printed or not, we ought to make disciples. But there's a lot of debate. There's varying viewpoints on what is a disciple and how you do make disciples. Now, the Bible gives us a Greek word for disciple. It means learner. So we are to learn. But that culture is different from ours. When we think learner, we think passively sit and fill our heads with knowledge. And Jesus was never satisfied just to say what was true. He wanted people to act on what they heard. I'm going to say that again. Jesus was never satisfied to just say what was true. He wanted people to act on what they heard. Not one example I know of in Scripture where Jesus chastises someone for their lack of knowledge. But you know, there are some examples in Scripture where he does that very thing for their lack of faith, his closest followers and friends. He says, oh, what, you know this, oh, ye of little faith. You've used that before, haven't you? You want to do something, try something. You got someone that's doubting their way and that cost-benefit analysis. They're leaning toward the no and you're leaning toward the yes and you look at them and you quote Jesus and you say, you're twisting Scripture for your sordid purposes. But you say, oh, ye of little faith. Jesus chastised his friends for their lack of faith, never, to my knowledge, for their lack of knowledge. And conversely, he praised people. And I don't know of one example where he said, way to go, y'all. Y'all know a lot. Way to go. You are my disciples because you, you got a lot of information. I, I, don't, I don't know of one example. If you find it, show me. But I do know examples where Jesus, it says that Jesus was amazed at their Faith, the Roman centurion, Bartimaeus, the unclean woman. He was amazed at their faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. He who comes to God must realize that he is and that he is rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jesus was not satisfied to simply say what was true. He wanted his disciples, he wants you and I to act on what we hear. What if that began to permeate the people of Fondren Church? What if that began to seep into your own heart and mind? What if you began to restructure the way you think about being a follower of Jesus and your very own spiritual experience and your church involvement? When you circle up, you would realize that it's good to increase knowledge. I'm all for knowledge. But seminary classes alone don't produce followers of Jesus. Do you know any seminary folks? I know some. But what if you began to think, hey, what, what really pleases our Lord and what really makes a follower of Jesus is we begin to look at each other and say, are we hearing him and are we acting on what we're hearing him say? Paul writes to the church at Corinth, the church that was riddled with strife and conflict and immorality and divisions and problems. And he tells them that your story is different. And one of the ways he tells them that their story is different is the following. He, has, he says that, we live by faith, not by sight. Now, how do you know if you live by sight and not by faith? 
The easy answer, I can tell you, your life is very boring and bland. It's not much of a, an adventure. If you live by sight and not by faith, it's when you, you have to know all the facts before you move forward. You have to resolve every problem before you proceed. You have to anticipate every question prior to the launch. You have to know everything that could go wrong before you could begin. You have to answer and have everyone who's opposed agree with you before you start. That's a life of sight. But a life of faith is God speaks. And you act, even at times when you're not sure. I love Hebrews 11. Faith is evidence of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. We got to come to him diligently. He rewards those who come to him in a diligent way. And it gives us person after person, male and female, who lived according to faith. Uh, the, the, the writer of Hebrews, we think it's Paul. We're not 100% sure. Maybe you have an opinion about that. But the writer of Hebrews was writing to those who lived under the strains of Roman pressure. And he, as writing, to, writing this epistle, writing this letter, he recounts a lot of the heroes of the faith. Abraham, Jacob, Rahab, Moses, Mary, and others. Now, what did these people have in common? What was the common denominator of these people of faith listed in Hebrews chapter 11? It wasn't their age. It wasn't their IQ. It wasn't their gender. It wasn't some of their customs. Uh, what was it? It wasn't their competency. It wasn't because they made fine, calculated decisions in their lives 100% of the time. In fact, far from it. Faith is only born in doubt and struggle. And these people were praised and these people were heroes of the faith. Why? Because of, their, because of their faith. Because of their faith. God says, I was amazed at their faith. I, I didn't make their life easy. In the midst of the doubt and struggle, faith was born. Years ago when I was, I think I was about 23, 24 years old. Not long after graduating college and I had spent a couple of consecutive summers in a country uh, known as it was former Yugoslavia. And the city was Belgrade. And several of us, a few of us, flew to the coast. And we flew to this beautiful, uh, beautiful coastal community in Croatia called Dubrovnik. Unbelievable. One of the most stunning places you could ever visit. And we took this little little plane. It's one of those planes where, like those regional jets we've flown on recently from Houston to Dallas back to, to Jackson. It had, you know, you normal-sized people have to duck walking on the plane. There's like sheeps and goats and stuff on the plane as well as human passengers, right? And there's on one side, there's just one row, and then on the other side of the aisle, there's two rows. And as the plane, it, you just, it just, no one was really that confident in the plane. And as it, even before it took off, the woman next to me was just, you could tell, just very, very nervous. And as the plane, uh, as it ascended, as it took off, she uh, reached over and grabbed my leg. And she, she said, are you okay? And I said, I was, but <laughs> I can't get out of here and you, you're touching my leg. She said, you, later she said, as we experienced bumps and jolts and turbulence of, of, of the highest capacity. I mean, I've never experienced this before. She said, do you think we're going to make it? And I said, I think we're going to make it. But secretly, I wondered if we're going to make it. I just wanted that grip to be released a little bit there. 
And here's what I'd say to you. I think back on that flight, and what I remember is on that flight, just she and I and other people around us, you know, some had more faith than others that we would make it. Conversely, some had less faith than others that we would make it. But, you know, I started thinking all of us had faith to get on the plane. And sometimes I think we hear stories of Hebrews 11 and we uh, carve out an hour, 35 minutes or so, and we listen to a preacher talk to us about faith. And instead of it inspiring us, it kind of condemns us because it just, it seems to elude our grasp. It just seems to be outside of our realm of life experience. And I can tell you in my own life, and I just a few weeks ago and the desert of California, I walked out under a night sky with many stars. The night sky in the desert is among the most beautiful things on earth. And I, and I looked up, and, and I remember thinking, Lord, I need help. I need help. And, I, and I've thought, I've been laughing. I've been the life of the party. But I have inwardly doubted you and wondered about this predicament because all of us live between earth and heaven. We live in a, a, with our predicament and God's provision. And it's hard, isn't it? You're, you're there today. Some of you, it's weighing heavy on you. Your predicament, I don't know what it is. You do. And there's God's provision. Well, where is it, God? And all you think, you're beating yourself up because you're the nervous lady on the airplane. You're just thinking about your doubts. But faith, faith can grow in that. The important thing is to get on the plane. Parents, you know about your children, right? I, I think of a common scenario. Parent will be getting a little child ready for school. There's breakfast and backpacks and getting things to ready, ready, tying shoes and giving instructions and all that, giving calm assurance about the day. And that child will ask that parent for something. That parent, in the heat of the moment, will make a promise. Now, they don't mean that promise, do they? They're hoping what? That the child will forget and they'll say something like, oh, yeah we'll, yeah, we'll go after school, we'll go fly that kite. Not that anybody flies kites anymore unless it's on a gaming system, but just pretend with me, right? Yeah, we'll go fly that kite. And what happens after school? The kid, the kid gets home and says, Mommy, Daddy, let's go fly that kite. You promised. And the child, I'm stating the obvious here, but follow me, a child lives on promises. A child is completely dependent on someone who's bigger and smarter and richer because they can't do anything for themselves. And Jesus taught in Matthew 18, 1, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom where everyone's invited, but you will not enter if you don't have the faith of a child. And beneath the veneer, beneath our polish, beneath our education, our accumulations and all that we have, and we got some... Handsome, beautiful, good-looking, rich people in the room probably. Just look around for a minute. Identify some. But beneath that, I believe that what we all have in common between our predicament and God's provision, between earth and heaven, is you're nothing, you and I are nothing more than children dependent on the promises of God. And for some of you, you want to just rise up and soar with joy because you're seeing God's provision in your life. 
But some of you, man, it hurts. And you even wonder why you stumbled in here today. Because it's hard to think about having faith with your predicament. Unless you have the faith of a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. As a church, as we talk about our three values later this month, as we call you in community, and you know we're going to do that, right? Back to school for many people means back to church for somebody. I'm not judging. I'm just saying, welcome back. Some of you will have more in the next couple of weeks, right? Not judging. Not judging. We're going to ask you as we kind of start for the fall, and let me just say I was thinking this morning, last night actually, the question for the fall is not what will I do? The question for the fall is what will I do in faith? And I want it to be the question for our church. You know, we're going to call you into community. We've got a lot of exciting and new things happening for that, which I'm glad. And we're going to ask you, if you're not in community, to get in community. If you're in community, to grow deeper into that community. If you're in a community that's been growing deep, we want to ask you to look out, to face, and help us be an externally focused church. Because, you know, nowhere in the Bible, when it talks about what really matters, nowhere in the Bible does it say that a church is, about, a, church is a place where everybody knows everybody. Church is about a place where everybody knows Jesus. And some of you are like, well, I want to go to church where everybody knows everybody. Well, no, you don't. I don't think you do. I've been to some of those churches where everybody knows everybody. It's not the best thing. There There are other things. But the only thing that matters, the only thing that counts is not this religious stuff. It's not traditions. Now, traditions are important. Look at this stained glass. Isn't it beautiful? Every time I come in here without you and I pray alone on my own or with a friend, and we've done that a lot lately, praying in here with people, prayers of joy, prayers of sorrow. I love looking at this stained glass. How beautiful is that? And it reminds us all, right, that there's a tradition. And traditions are important. But traditionalism, which is the dead faith of those who are living, is not a good thing. And it gets in our way. But what if we were people of faith? I was thinking and praying for us for this fall. Not what will we do, but what will we do in faith? And I'd like for you to make that personal. Because, you know, group life is exciting. Christian community is really invigorating. If you're in a circle with people and there's somebody, at least one person in that circle, that's living a life of faith or that's acting on something that they've heard. It's a really beautiful thing. They can inspire you. But there's five phrases, five Faulty phrases, five famous faith-faltering phrases. Sorry, I struggle with alliteration sometimes. Five famous faith-faltering phrases, hopefully not at Fondren. (laughs) Here they are. You ever said any of these? First one, we've tried it and it didn't work. Uh, Nehemiah, Chapter 2, you know, Nehemiah led a group of people, men and women, who were courageous, who rebuilt the walls and the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And listen, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and we will build. The second faulty phrase, famous phrase of faulty faith, we can't afford it. Scripture says in Psalm 50 and verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, every cattle on a thousand hills. What will we trust him for? What will you 
trust Him for. Third famous phrase of faltering faith, we've never done it that way before. Those people kill me, by the way. They just kill me. God help me. Look at this passage. This is Joshua called by God to lead the people across the River Jordan into the land of Cana. And part of what he says here in Joshua 3, 4, in the middle of this passage, for you have not passed this way before. God can do a new thing in you. He can. God can do a new work in you. You know, in Daniel, that, that, that famous book in the, in, in the middle of the Bible, Daniel refers to God as the ancient of days. That could be really insulting, right? To call God an old man. It just seems so irreverent. You know, I picture George Burns in the movie, uh, Oh God. Anybody, Lauren, remembers that? But, you know, really old guy. But that's obviously not a, a, a statement of blasphemy or sacrilege. It's a statement of reverence. You are the ancient of days. God has always existed. That blows my mind. But God has always been around. He's the ancient of days. But this ancient of days wants to give us a new heart. Ezekiel says he wants to turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. All throughout the Bible, new heart, new mind, new spirit, new work. And ultimately, God is creating a new heaven and a new earth. And if your faith and our church and your individual life and your family and your small group and the folks that you're journeying with, if you just say, we've never done it this way before, you're limiting God. It's not a life of faith. Number four, I believe we're on. We're not ready for that. When are you ever ready? Show me a passage in the Bible where someone was just really ready. I dare you. Everything, the table was set. Banquet table was set, perfectly ready. And God said, go. I can't think of one. Not one. Don't be stupid, but live a life of faith. Look at this passage. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding. What do horses do? They go ahead. They go out in front. What do mules do? They stay behind. And some of us, our faith is, it's sight. It's the sight of a stubborn, stay behind mule. And lastly, I've got to see it. This is Thomas in John 20. I love that Jesus includes this story of doubting Thomas in the Bible. Tough when you live a life and you have a legacy that spans the, the centuries. And you're, the adjective in front of your name is, is a negative one, right? Doubting Thomas. But it's actually a gift to us because you're a doubting person, right? In fact, do it with me. Everybody know their first name, okay? Say it. We're going to say it together. You're going to say doubting. I'm going to say doubting Robert. You know what you're going to say? Brent, you good? Help him, Angie. Ready? Doubting Robert. And so often, you and I are crippled by the life that God wants us to live and for us to live as a church because we say, I've got to see it first. And I've been reminded recently, you know what leaders do? Leaders go first. And leaders don't know how, they don't have to know every fact before they move forward, resolve every problem before they proceed, anticipate every question prior to launching, know every obstacle, everything that could go wrong before they begin, or have everyone in agreement before they move forward. But I want to live a life of faith. Now, what does Galatians 5, 6 say? That other stuff doesn't matter. The only thing that counts, can you say it? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. We want to talk about that love thing next week. And what could a loving church 
really look like. Love to us is an accordion word. We stretch it, right? It's elastic and we move around. I love, the, I love baseball. I love peanut butter. I love, I love college football. I can't wait. I love winter. You know, how many of you complained about the heat this summer? Just raise your hand. Yeah. You know that if earth was one and a half percent closer to the sun, we'd all blow up, just burn up. You know that? I mean, I'm just saying God could just go. So quit your griping. That's what he taught me this week in my own quiet time. Would you pray with me?